The text picks up as Paul writes in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Listen, church, God is a God of design and order. Everything that he creates has order. Everything that he creates has a design to it. Consider with me just the, the, the landscape of creation for a moment. That God has positioned and created our universe in such a way that the sun and the earth are positioned just far enough away from each other that we're not so close that we would spontaneously combust and end up in ash, nor are we so far that we would end up frozen in blocks of ice, but that we are the perfect position for life to be sustainable on this planet as it orbits around that that big ball of gas that we call the sun. Or you think of God's work in creation as he orders things and designs things, as he separates the sea from the dry ground, the waters above the heavens and the waters beneath, as he orders everything in such a way that plants can grow and animals can graze and people and life can flourish in creation. God is a God of design and order, and that is no less true when it comes to everything that God has created, including marriage. There is an order and a design for marriage that God intends. And in this text, right, what we see is that God orders and designs marriage with particular roles for husbands to play and particular roles for wives to play. Now listen, oftentimes in premarital counseling, I I did singles ministry for about eight years uh, before stepping out to help plant this church. And, and over the course of that time, I did lots of premarital counseling, met with lots of single adults, young men and young women. And one of the things that I noticed over the course of my tenure in singles ministry was this, is that many young men who wanted to move toward marriage, they wanted a wife, but not necessarily wanted to be a husband. Or many young women, as they moved toward marriage, they wanted a husband, but didn't necessarily want to be a wife at least in the way that the Bible gives us clarity on what it should look like. And so I would sit down in premarital counseling with them and I would ask the young men, I would say, listen, listen, bro, do you you just want a wife or do you want to embrace God's call on your life to be the kind of husband in your home that God desires you to be? And I would look at the young lady and I would say, I wouldn't say bro, but I would say, listen, young child and daughter of God, right? Do Do you want... I'm much gentler on the ladies. Do do you want um, just to have a husband or do you want to be the kind of wife that God has ordained and called you to be, right? In other words, do you just want to be embraced in the relationship and have a spouse or do you want to embrace the role that God has given you as you seek to be the kind of spouse that he has ordained and called you to? to be which of those are you looking for because there's so much damage that is done in the context of marriage whenever men refuse to embrace the role that God has ordained and called them to and women refuse to embrace the role that God has ordained
trained and called them to, to work hand in hand as partners in this thing called covenant union. And so I would look at him and I would say, if you're going to get married, you've got to put your big boy pants on and your big girl pants on, and you've got to embrace the role that God has called you to embrace in the context of covenant marriage. Which in this text, Paul defines as headship and submission. Now, just even saying those words in public these days, right, um, it causes maybe some things to bristle for us, causes some hairs to stand up on our arms, on the back of our necks, because the truths that we find in this text have fallen out of favor, just put it mildly, have fallen out of favor within our culture. And yet if we want to see how God has ordered and designed even this most intimate of relationship, we've got to, one of the things we've got to do is this. We've got to try to recover these roles that God has set in the foundation of creation. We've got to try and recover them from the ravages of sin. Because listen, one of the things you need to recognize is that sin did not, contrary to popular belief, sin did not create these roles. It distorted and twisted them. I want you to follow me on this this morning. It didn't create these roles, but it distorted and twisted them. It didn't bring them into existence, but it definitely caused them to be destructive. See, early on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, it says that God creates men and women as separate and distinct from one another. Male and female, he created them. Right? That's what it says in Genesis 1.26. In other words, that God created them with gender as a man or gender as a woman. And so gender is not a social construct. God did not create genderless individuals or people and say, just figure it out as you go, Right? <laughs> And so all, listen, this is a sermon for another day, so I'm not going to spend much time on this. But listen, this, one of the things this means is this, is whenever we refuse to recognize that God has created us male and God has created us female in his image and in his likeness, and we try to go out and find ourselves, what we end up doing is losing ourselves as we buck against God's design and order in creation. Right? But God created us male and female in his likeness and image. If you read further in Genesis, in Genesis 2-7, you see that it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now listen, that word formed that's translated in our English text is the English word that uses, is used to translate a Hebrew word, which is so much richer than that. And it literally means this. It means that God, with his own hands, from the things that he'd already made, that he'd already spoken into being out of the dust of the ground, that he formed with intention and with care and with purpose and with design, that he took extra special attention as he made humanity, as he fashioned and sculpted and shaped them with expectations and intentions, with desires and design. So God did not haphazardly create but he did so with order and design. Once again, you see all over the pages of the Bible, God does so with order and design. And then God says there's not a suitable helper amongst all the animals of the field that I've made, right? In Genesis 2, he draws all the animals that he had made, right, and parades them right in front of the man. And the man names them all, right? Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, right? They're all there, but none of them are a suitable helper for the man, and so what does God do? He causes the man to fall into a deep sleep and he removes a rib from his side and he, out of that rib he forms, he fashions the woman. And he brings her before the man. The man says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and this is the suitable helper for whom the man had been looking. 
right? Now, to name something in the ancient world in that particular context oftentimes was to exercise authority or to have some authority over it. He names all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and the fishes of the sea. There's some authority that he now has over these things. And so also theologians look at the fact that the man gives the, gives the, the, the woman a name, calls her woman. And in some sense, that's, a, that's a, the first exercise of headship there in the garden. Before the fall, before sin enters the world, before anything gets twisted, before anything gets distorted, before anything gets wrapped around like the, 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 and destroyed, he exercises headship, some degree of authority. And the woman's called a suitable helper. Now listen, some of you ladies are like, I'm more than a helper. And listen, you are. Right? Because that is a weak translation of the Hebrew as well. Listen, the word helper in the Hebrew language, when it shows up in the Old Testament, listen, listen to the places that it shows up. It shows up most frequently in the Old Testament to describe God himself, who is the helper of Israel. It's the helper of kings. He's the helper of priests. He's the help for prophets, for God's people, that God shows up whenever the people are insufficient and inadequate in themselves to do what God has called them to do. God shows up. In addition, it shows up places where it's used in military context in the Old Testament, where the army might be engaged in a battle and they're losing. They're getting their tails whipped, right? And so they're having to withdraw or retreat and all of a sudden reinforcement shows up. The troops are rallied and they rush down onto the battlefield alongside the troops that were tired and weary and they provide the reinforcements that are necessary in order to push the line forward and have victory in the battle. So help in the Old Testament isn't this. It's not somebody who comes along to assist someone else with something they could have done without their assistance. You with me? But help in the Old Testament often describes and almost in, in, in inevitably describes this reality that to be a helper in the Old Testament was to, be, was to make up what was lacking in the other person with your unique abilities, gifts, and strengths. That's the kind of help that the man needed. He didn't need somebody to assist him with something he could have done on his own, but he needed someone to make up for what was lacking in him, for what he didn't have. That's what it means to be a helper. And suitable is also a weak translation. Right, it translates an entire Hebrew phrase that means like but opposite him. In other words, that God has designed maleness and femaleness in the context of human relationships and in particularly in the context of marriage to be complementary to one another. Like two pieces of a puzzle that make up a bigger picture. And that without them, right, the other is to some degree incomplete. Doesn't paint the full picture of the, the, the beauty and mystery and majesty of God in his image as it's formed in human beings in maleness and in femaleness. So God's design in the creation of humanity was this, is that there would be a maleness and a femaleness that would be complementary to each other because the male that he had created first, who had headship, did not have everything that he needed to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And listen, some of you are like, well, that means just a woman's only good for giving birth. Like, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what the Bible is saying either. It's not saying that. 
what it's saying is that when God gives the cultural mandate to our first parents in Genesis, he tells them to fill the earth and subdue it. You know what what it means to subdue the earth? It means to create culture, to order things, to establish boundaries. It's what God had been doing from Genesis 1-2 as he he divides the day and night, as he divides the dry land and 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 the seas, as he divides all the darkness, he divides everything out into its appropriate places. And in that cultural mandate that we're given to create, that we're given to create culture, that we're given to order and establish boundaries and creation, that cultural mandate is given to both men and women to fulfill based upon their unique roles and gifts and abilities. And that, 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 that as men exercise headship and women come alongside and are helpers in that context, there, is, there are things that men lack that women bring to the table and things that women lack that men bring to the table. There is a beautiful complementary picture here of God's design in the context of marriage. One would be the primary initiator and the other would be the primary responder. Notice I said primary because it's not always. The head is the primary initiator and the help is the primary responder, but sometimes, based upon your unique wiring and gifts, there are th- those, those things can. I'm not saying that women are just silent and they don't ever speak up and they just follow along with whatever a man says. I've got to tell you more about what I'm not saying this morning than what I am saying in order to get to what I am saying. All right? But as a primary initiator and primary responder, and this, this, this beauty, this reality of biblical maleness and biblical femaleness, masculinity and femininity, here's what it does. It creates relief. Now, you know what relief is? Relief is not only what you feel whenever you walk into an air-conditioned building in the middle of August at 3 p.m. in Dallas, Texas. Right? That's relief. That's comfort, isn't it? Yeah, right? All the pores kind of start drying up and, right, you got... Maybe have a few little pit stains you got to go take care of. But it's relief from the heat. Right? But the word relief is also used in geography or topography of maps and landscapes. You know what it means there? The word relief there means this. It means a prominence or a beauty that's created by contrast. In other words, because this is different than this, it stands out and it stands forth. See, if we lived in a world in which the topography of the world in which we live was just flattened out completely, there would be no relief, there would be no prominence because there would be no contrast and there would be no beauty. Everything would be flat. So you would never stand at the base of a massive mountain and just stand in awe. You would never stand at the, at the, at the precipice or at the, at the edge of a deep canyon and just be amazed by the beauty and the color. Right? There would be no Mariana Trench miles beneath the surface of the ocean and there would be no Mount Everest that rose miles above the surface of the earth. Because there's prominence that's created by contrast, beauty that's created by these differences. Right? Differences are not ugly things, they're beautiful things that God has ordained and established and woven into the fabric of creation. And the same is true of biblical masculinity and biblical femininity and the roles that God has ordained for both men and women in the context of marriage. But we have to recover those roles from the ravages of sin. Because you see, this relationship that God ordains worked beautifully for one verse of the Bible. (laughs) In Genesis 2.25, we read, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Now that's talking about more than just not having on clothes and their physical nakedness, but there was emotional nakedness, a psychological nakedness, a spiritual nakedness. They were exposed. Everything was on the table and there was no shame because there was no sin and there was no wrestling and there was no fighting and there was no, there was no contention in the relationship. They were both fulfilling this God-ordained purpose without any shame, without any diminishing of their value whatsoever, without any hierarchical structures that oppressed and dictated. They were both naked and not ashamed. And that lasted for one verse. (laughs) Because when you turn the page into Genesis chapter 3, you find the fall of mankind. And from the time of the fall, right, you find this relationship gets twisted and distorted and it becomes ravaged by sin. It becomes vandalized by sin, right? And so listen, if we're going to recover the roles from the ravages of sin, here's one of the things we have to do. We have to strip away the layers of cultural graffiti, right? The strip away the layers of cultural graffiti. Uh, there's a famous landmark in the city of Copenhagen, Denmark, it's, it's a statue called the Little Mermaid. Now, I don't know if her name is Ariel, but her hair is not red, okay? But it's a, it's a statue that's situated there by the docks. And it's a bronze statue of this mermaid sitting upon this rocky um, stand. And over the course of its history, it has been vandalized multiple times right there in 2003 people strapped explosives to the base of the statue and blew it off of its rocky perch all right they recovered it and set it back up and got it fixed back in its place right multiple times throughout its history the statue has been decapitated right so let's go ahead and take the head off multiple times the head has been replaced in 2007 it was covered from head to toe in pink paint after that was all removed and it was restored Uh, several months later it was covered over in red paint and that was all removed and restored over and over and over again there have been attempts to vandalize this statue this work of art this beauty that this master craftsman has formed and fashioned and sculpted and set in place to demonstrate to the world beauty and over and over again it's been vandalized and marriage is much the same way See, every culture gets some things right about it and every culture gets some things wrong about it. And over and over again, that cultural graffiti gets layered on top of God's workmanship. Right? If you've ever seen walls that are layered with graffiti, right? you go into ur- the urban centers of our nation and you drive by and you go into the overpasses and there's all this graffiti there. You know, at some point that started with just one tag. All right? One person with a bottle of spray paint. But over the course of time, it just grew and built. And in fact, sometimes the original graffiti is now covered up by all the other layers. The original, some of you are like, graffiti is not art. Argue that with the graffiti artist, not me. But listen, it, the, the original piece of art is now covered up by all these other layers. And that's exactly what has happened to marriage. God's intention and design was beautiful from the foundations of the world. But over the course of time and history and in different cultures, it's been covered time and time and time again with all these layers of cultural graffiti. And if we're going to recover it from the ravages of sin, we've got to strip some of those layers away. See, there are some women in the room, some women in the room that have only been surrounded by men. I I told you I was going to get to this in a couple of weeks and we're here, 
all right? You've only been surrounded by men, only known men, and only seen relationships with men that were cold, that were small-minded, that were selfish, that were controlling, that were dictatorial, right? That were self-centered and self-absorbed. Men who used women rather than love them, right? They used them for their own pleasures. They used them for, to secure progeny. They treated them as their property or as their domestic servant. That is not... God's vision for marriage. Other women have only known men who have been indifferent, who have been apathetic, who have been insecure, who have been lazy, and who have been unreliable. That is not God's vision for the man's role in marriage. You've got to begin to strip away some of those cultural layers of graffiti. On the flip side, listen, some men have only experienced relationships with women who were calculating and full of cruel intentions. That was a movie a while back, wasn't it? Where they use flattery and charm to manipulate those who are around them. Other men have only known women who were less deceptive, but at the same time equally as destructive because their hearts were brazen. You know what that means? It means just absolutely rebellious and they were shameless in their unwillingness to come under anyone's leadership. That's what some men and women have only known. And these effects on those roles of headship and submission, they are not God's intention. They are cultural layers of graffiti that have to be stripped away because it has distorted and made these roles very ugly and destructive. Let me strip away a few more layers for you. Let's just run them down. Headship, let me tell you what it's not. Let me tell you what headship and submission are not before I tell you what they are. First of all, headship is not hierarchical and submission is not demeaning. Headship is not hierarchical and submission is not demeaning. Here's why. Because in God's vision for marriage, He envisions marriage as being a, a, a partnership between equal persons who have distinct and different roles. They're equal in value, equal in dignity, both created in the image of God. It wasn't that men were created in the image of God and women were created as something lesser, or that women were created in the image of God and men were created as something lesser, but both equally created in the image of God, equal persons with distinct roles. You see this reality functionally in all kinds of other relationships in life. Right? You see it in the workplace. You see it with supervisors and those whom they supervise. Your boss in the office is not worth more than you are. Maybe his net worth is higher than yours, but his dignity and value is not on some different plane than yours. He is still a man or a woman, or she is still a man or a woman. It's created in the image of God. And those that they supervise have equal dignity and value are on the same footing. They just have different roles in the business. Right, you see it also in your kids' lives, right? Those of you who are parents in here, you know that your children's friends, those that they play up and down the street with, those that they play ball with, those that they go to school with, your children's friends are equal in person but distinct in role from you as their parent, right? You have a different role in the lives of your kids than their friends do. But you're not any more valuable, you don't have any more inherent dignity than their friends do. You just have a different role or a different authority in your kids' lives. Right? Equal persons, distinct roles. Perhaps the most beautiful place that you see this reality in the way that it works itself out is in the Godhead itself. 
as you see the Father and the Son and the, and the Spirit who are equal in persons from all eternity, both were, all three worthy of adoration and worship and devotion, but they have distinct functions, distinct roles in the outworking of salvation. Look in Ephesians 1 where Paul says this, that it was the Father who set his affection upon those whom he would adopt as his children and he predestined it from the foundations of the world. It was the Son who stepped into human history to accomplish our redemption and lay his life down and shed his blood for us. And it's the Holy Spirit that seals us for the day of, of, of redemption whenever we are, are fully and finally set free from sin and the presence of it. That the Father predestines, the Son redeems, the Spirit seals, but just because they have different roles in subordination at times to one another, it does not mean that they are somehow, the Father is greater than the Son who is greater than the Spirit. They are all equal persons. And if there's that kind of equality and diversity of roles within God Himself, then why should there not also be that mirrored in the context of human relationships, particularly in the most intimate of one in marriage? It is not hierarchical, men. Right? You, don't, you do not have more value or dignity than your wife. Some cultures have twisted and distorted that. And ladies, it is not demeaning. It is not demeaning. Some cultures have twisted and distorted that. Second of all, listen, headship is not forceful and submission is not involuntary. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Headship is not forceful. Men, you do not make a woman submit to you. That is not how it works. Right? And ladies, you do not, your submission, it must be willing and voluntary. It is not something that is forced upon you. Right? If you look at the analogy that Paul draws between Christ and the church, when he, says, when he speaks of the way that Christ loves and leads and lays his life down for the church, Right, that would foster and nurture this desire and willingness to come under his leadership because of the way that he cares and loves and sacrifices for the sake of his people. See, headship is not forceful. And submission is not involuntary. Headship is not dictatorial. You know what, men? You are not the CEO of your home. You know what that means? That means you don't have a corner office. That means you don't, you, don't, you don't take the elevator to the penthouse, right? It doesn't mean that you get to issue inter-office memos about policy changes to those who are in your family, right? You, you, that's, that's not how this works, right? You don't get to dictate to everyone who's around you what they must do, when they must do it, how they must do it in order to please you. It is not dictatorial. You don't get to make unilateral decisions. And ladies, listen, submission is not, it is not spineless. Listen, what that means is this, is that it's not that he gets to make all the decisions and you just have to sit back and roll with the punches. That you don't get to weigh in, that you don't get to speak into the context, that you don't get to share your opinions and thoughts, or that you don't, mm, some some men make you believe that you don't get to have opinions and thoughts. That is not God's design. You should have opinions and thoughts and you should speak those opinions and thoughts into the context of the relationship because he doesn't get to dictate to you what you get to do and when you get to do it. 
Is anybody with me so far? All right, I got one in the back. Right? In addition, headship is not insensitive. You do not get to roll over her feelings on issues. Right? Whenever she brings things to the table, men, you don't get to dismiss those because she's some overly emotional female. In addition, submission is not superficial. Ladies, listen, submission is not only external conformity. While all the while, under the surface, you're undermining him by your heart attitudes and the way that you speak about him to other people. Headship, men, is not abusive. You do not ever get to raise your hand to her. And ladies, submission is not cowardly. It's not cowering under the hand of a controlling or oppressive man. It cannot be any of these things in God's intention. Finally, headship is not self-centered. It's not a position of privilege. It's a position of service. See, leadership in our context, when we think of headship, when we think of leadership, oftentimes we think of those who have rewards programs and they get perks and they get first class flights and they get free drinks and desserts and they get like tickets to concerts and tickets to ball games and sporting events and all those kinds of things. That's what we think of. People who have all kinds of privileges and perks that are associated with it. But biblically, leadership is a position of responsibility and it's a position of service and it's a position of sacrifice. See, whenever Jesus is on kind of the last leg of his earthly ministry, he's got all his disciples gathered around him, and they're arguing with one another about who's going to get the position of power whenever Jesus comes in his kingdom. And Jesus turns to his followers and he says, why is it that you act like you don't even know God? Why is it that you treat leadership and authority in the same way that Gentiles do? He says, for I have not come, right, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He says, you want a model for leadership. You don't lord it over others like the Gentiles do. Those who have no, I, the foggiest idea of who God is and what he's done. Right? You don't lord it over them, but you come under them to serve them. That's the, that's the responsibility that we have as husbands in the context of our homes. Not to exercise headship in a self-centered way, but in a way that allows our wives and our children to flourish because we lay our life down for them and we serve them and we sacrifice for them. In addition, ladies, submission is not slavish. It is not slavish. See, although in the text, wives are told to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, I want you to notice something, that little word as. As. There's a comparison here between the husband and Christ. And I want you to know, and you are painfully aware of this if you've been married for any time at all, your husband is not Jesus. Can I get a witness? <laughs> yes. Now, after this, ladies, you have to build your husbands up. Right? But listen, he is not Jesus. And what that means is he doesn't have a license to lead you into sin. You don't have to follow a foolish man into all kinds of sinful activity because you are his slave. That is not submission. All these are layers of cultural graffiti that have been layered on top of these terms that the Bible has no place for. 
that the vision for human flourishing has, in, in the scriptures and God's intention has no place for. So if this is not what we're talking about this morning, let's, let's try and land the plane and tell you what we are talking about this morning when we talk about headship and submission from the scriptures. What is it? Headship is this. Headship is a husband's divine call to servant leadership in his home. It's a husband's divine call to servant leadership in his home. Listen to what Paul says again in Ephesians chapter 5. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her by having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. In the same way, husbands, in the same way, husbands, in the same way, in the, in the same way, husbands, love your wives. What's in the same way? By loving and laying your life down for the sake of your spouse, for the sake of your wife. You know what that means? It means you serve her. The way that you lead in your home is by serving your wife. by serving her needs it's by serving her interests it's by serving at times her desires and wants right it's by serving her that is the kind of leadership that God envisions for a man to exercise in his home and that kind of leadership involves several things right first of all I want you to consider this leadership involves initiation now, now, listen, I'm, I, I am holding up a mirror right now and I'm staring at myself in it. had this conversation with my wife yesterday. I'm preaching to myself, but leadership involves initiation. You see, men in our homes, we should be the primary initiator. I'm not saying we're the only initiator because there are times in which your wife will see things that you are oblivious to. Why? Because she was created as your help, not your assistant to help you accomplish things that you could do without her, but as one who would make up for the lack that is found in you. And there will be times in which she sees things that you are oblivious to, and she will lean into those. She will initiate those conversations. But it should be the regular rhythm of your home that you will be the primary initiator in decisions that the family needs to make, in discipline with the children, in direction for the children, in the way that things are running in your home, in the way things tend to be running out of control, or the way things are running under control in your home, you should initiate primarily those conversations and that directional kind of leadership. Not dictating to her where you're going to go, but saying, hey, I've seen this. You should be looking out ahead to some degree. And thinking of where the family is headed. Right? That's a part of what it is to lead. 
It's part of what our elders are tasked with in this church is to be kind of looking out ahead and saying, what's the next hill for us? What's the next thing that we need to focus on? Where do we need to give attention to? And men, that is our primary responsibility. Not that our wives never participate in that. And ladies, you never participate in that. But my primary responsibility as a husband and yours as well, men, is to be looking out ahead and serving your wife, laying your life down, initiating conversation with her about where you're headed, where the family's headed, where the kids are headed, where your finances are headed, what's going on in the home. You should be in tune with the rhythms of the home enough to initiate leadership there. It involves initiation, but it also involves, right? I, I tried to think of a word this week that w- would communicate clearly. I don't think I have one, so I'm going to give you two, right? Cooperation and delegation. And when I say the word delegation, I'm not talking about a hierarchical structure where you get to tell your wife what to do and when to do it. What I'm saying is there are going to be things that she is more adept at and more skilled at and more gifted for in your home than you are, and you should let go of those things. Even, listen, even if this culture tells you that that should be your responsibility, Even if the Western, modern American culture tells you that should be, this should be hers and that should be yours, there are going to be things that she is better at than you are and you should let go, recognize that, affirm that, and be willing to let go of it. And there's cooperation in accomplishing all those tasks, right? So you're not walking around saying submit, submit, submit. Like, in fact, probably wise never to say that word to your wife. I said it early on in our marriage about some directional things and I learned very quickly that is not the way to lead. The only time that I use that word in my home these days is, and it's very few and far between is when my wife is overburdened and she is overstressed and I can see it on her face and she's flustering around the kitchen trying to get dinner together. Maybe I've just walked in, she's trying to get dinner together or she's trying to get clothes folded and the kids are like about to go ballistic and slit each other's throats and there's fighting and going crazy. And there's all, she's just kind of at her wit's end. And if I walk in sometimes, I will say to her, baby, let me take, let me take this, let me take the kids, let me finish getting dinner, let me do, and she, I don't know what it is, but she'll just ignore me. Like, like she didn't even hear me. And there are some times where I'll say, baby, for your good right now, you need to submit and let me take these things and you go just sit and rest or go outside on the swing and just have some space, right? And so for me, when I try, when I've learned, it took me a long time, I'm gonna use that word, use it for her good, for her benefit, not for your own selfish desires. I don't even remember where I was, but we gotta get back in on track or we're going to run out of time. Initiation, delegation, cooperation. Headship, listen men, it involves the primary responsibility for protection in the home. That means when you're laying in bed, physical protection and spiritual protection. Let me break those two things down for you. When you're laying in bed at night and there's some kind of weird noise outside, you don't turn over and say to your wife, hey baby, get up and go check that out. <laughs> right? That is, that is not how that rolls. All right? Right, that it is your responsibility as, the, as, as a man to protect your family. Right? And some of you are like, oh, I protect my family real well. I've got a whole stash of ammunition and firearms hidden in a gun safe, locked beneath the surface of the ground in a big fallout shelter where we're going to ride out the nuclear holocaust. Right? So I'm going to protect my family. 
Some of you are really good maybe at protecting them physically, but what about spiritually? Right? What about filtering things that are coming into the home? Influences that are coming into the home? Are you initiating that? Are you driving those conversations? Or are you just kind of along for the ride? And allowing influences to come in into your children's life, into your life, through, the, through media, through games, through, through mm, all unrestricted access on these little devices we call smartphones in the lives of your children? Are you involved in that conversation, actively setting boundaries for the spiritual protection of your home? Right? I've, I've had, my kids are in the service, but I'm going to talk about them here for a moment. I've, I've had them ask me on several occasions, Daddy, when can I get a phone? Right? Because they've got friends who are their ages who have phones and they have unbridled and unrestricted access to the internet. And the internet can be incredibly constructive and it can be incredibly destructive. And some of you know the power of its destruction in your life. Men, are you allowing influences into your home that will be destructive for your family and not spiritually nurturing them and protecting them? But it's also provision. It's also provision. See, headship involves a primary responsibility for provision in the home, both physical provision and spiritual provision. When there's not food on the table, men, listen, it's not that your wife can never go out and get a job. She's got to stay home and knit sweaters and cook meals, right? That is not what we're talking about, right? It is, but, but we bear the primary responsibility for physical provision, for the provision of food and shelter and clothing for the needs of our family. We bear that primary responsibility, and so that means if the family is falling short, that it's our primary responsibility. Do I need to go pick up a second job? Do I need to go out and take care of other things so that I can provide for my kids? It's my primary responsibility, right? Many of you know my wife works outside the home, right? And you, you would think that she, she works as a school nurse in a local elementary school. And one of the things that means for us is that because my f- schedule is more flexible than hers, Right? I, have the, I have the flexibility to drop my kids off in the morning and, and be at home whenever they get home in the afternoons. And I order and structure my day around those things so that she can go out and work because we, although this, this church provides a generous, the size of this church, I just want to say this, provides a generous salary for me. Right? To live, in, you, many of you know, to live in this community, it would not be enough. And so she works outside the home. And she brings in, in, in money in to, 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 to provide for our needs. But what that means for me is that I flex my schedule around hers to serve her and allow her to do that. But I, have, I bear the primary responsibility. So if that's not working, it's not her responsibility to go do something different. It's mine. But also spiritual provision. Men, are you initiating? Are you initiating prayer? Are you initiating Bible reading in your home and devotionals with your kids, sitting around the table in the evenings and talking about what they're learning, what God's doing? Are you initiating that in your home? Or are you just along for the ride? I, I gotta move. We, we're running out of time. That's headship, right? Headship is servant leadership, initiation, cooperation, delegation, protection, provision. And so men, will you pick up that torch that God has given you? And that God-ordained role and be the servant leader in your home. Will you pick up the towel and serve your spouse and your children? Will you use the authority that God has given you and your power to express a love that doesn't stop even to death? Because you're willing to lay your life down for them. On the flip side, submission. Submission. Submission is a wife's divine call to honor and affirm her husband's godly leadership. 
to honor and affirm her husband's godly leadership. Now listen, to honor, the word honor in the scriptures, when it shows up in the New Testament, oftentimes it's used in this way. It's to recognize and respond to the true value that someone possesses, not the value we esteem them to possess. And listen, ladies, we live in a culture in which the value of men has been under attack over the course of the last 50 years. Right, you see it in, in right, every sitcom. If you watch sitcoms in the evening, every sitcom you watch, you know what the, one of the storylines in that sitcom is how ditzy and dumb the man is and how the, he could not survive without the woman and the woman carries him kind of by her bootstraps all along wherever she goes because the man can't do anything, right? <laughs> he can't cook, he can't clean, he can't take care of the kids. He's just an idiot, Right? That, that, that is the pervasive narrative being told by mainstream media within our culture. And so ladies, when you, some, part of submission is honoring and affirming your husband's role by coming under his good and godly leadership and his initiatives. Will you treat your husband as if he can do nothing without, and, and, and when he's not around, will you speak of him as if he can do nothing? Like if I just didn't do it, he wouldn't get done. And listen, for some of you ladies, that may be true. But here, let me just stop for a moment and say this. If that's true, you need to ask, look in the mirror and ask yourself this question. Are you doing things that he should be doing and robbing him of the opportunity to do them? Right, for some of you, you may need to just stop doing some stuff. And whenever he walks in the door and be like, hey baby, why, why didn't this, baby, that's your divine calling? That is, that, is, that is the mantle that God has laid on your shoulders and I want to help you with that, but I'm not responsible for doing that. And if he gets flustered, tell him to come talk to me. Right, but will you honor and affirm his leadership? Will you joyfully affirm that and fill in the gaps in a complimentary way? See, submission involves an active participation, not a passive one where you're just, you're just kind of along for the ride, but an active one. And you carry through some of those godly initiatives. It's not that you, remember, you're not just silent. You're leaning into those conversations. You're initiating things at times as well, right? Because you're seeing things that he does it. But whenever he initiates, let me ask you this, ladies. How often do you just shut it down? Even when it's good godly initiatives, do you just push back and kind of jam him up? Or do you receive that and say, yes, I, that's, let's pray through that direction. Let's, let's come to a decision together. Because while he may have authority and headship from God, listen, there's, there's so many just interconnected parts here. Men, you should rarely, if, you should rarely say, like, I'm putting my foot down and this is where we're going. The only, the, the only time you should do that is when it's, for the protection of your family. If you see things that, are, that you're just not on the same page about and you believe them to be destructive in the lives of, those, of, your, of your wife or of your kids to say, listen, this is where we're headed. All right? you, should, you should rarely, if ever, use veto power. <laughs> but it should be a mutual decision as you work through things, pray through things together. And as she's weighing in, and then, ladies, are you using your unique gifts and abilities to help carry it through and follow through on those things. Because listen, women are wired so differently than men. And there's a spectrum in which that takes place, right? From, from those who are incredibly nurturing, 
right? Incredibly compassionate and gentle and kind, right, to the other side of the spectrum, to ladies who are maybe less so. But you have some of that hardwired into you as a mother, as a wife. And are you using that for the benefit of your husband who probably has none of that wired into him? For him, it's all about facts. For you, oftentimes, it's all about feelings and emotions. And he needs you just as much as you need him. Are you leaning into that, coming under his initiatives, or are you jamming him up and pushing back? Are you affirming and honoring him in the way that you speak about him and using your gifts to carry those things through? Now, some of you are like, can you give us more specifics? No. Here's why. Because the Bible was written for all cultures and all places. And the, the, if I go much further beyond these things, then here's what happens. I begin to layer in some more cultural graffiti for you. Here's your responsibility as a husband and wife. is to take what God has said and prayerfully work through it and then work it out into your relationship. And then both of you embracing, listen, I'm closing with this, embracing the responsibility to fulfill your role as a reflection of Jesus. We start with the wives. Many of you wives, you think that your husband's the only one who's a reflection of Christ, but I want you to know that you are as well because it was Christ who submitted to the Father in order to carry out the plan of salvation. In Philippians chapter two, in Philippians chapter two, Paul has a beautiful, beautiful exposition of the fact that Christ who though being in very nature God equality with God right equal persons didn't consider equality something to be grasped but made himself what he humbled himself as a servant even to the point of death and God exalted him and raised him up and wives listen you are a reflection of Jesus in your relationship to the degree that you submit and come under the good and godly leadership of your husband not falling him into sin but come under his good and godly leadership you're a reflection of Jesus and men you are as well as you lay your life down and sacrificially serve your wives and your family. Men, will you embrace that role and fulfill that as a reflection of Christ? Women, will you embrace that role and fulfill that as a reflection of Christ? Because what sin distorted, twisted, and ravaged in the fall, Christ has come, and that's the point of Ephesians 5, to redeem and to restore that relationship as a clearer, more beautiful representation and reflection of himself to the world. And that's what you and I get to be a part of as husbands and wives. Let's pray together. Father, today, we come thanking you for your grace and goodness. Father, I just want to acknowledge that I need this message just as much as any person in this room today. Father, would you give us as men a sense of weight and responsibility in our lives? Not to be passive, but to be active. Not to be dictatorial, but to be humble, to be servant leaders in our homes by sacrificing for our wives. And would you give the women of this church a sense of the weight of their divine calling to affirm their husband's leadership, to honor his leadership as he exercises it, not to shut him down or to jam him up, but to come under that and to use her unique gifts, the way that you've wired her 
complementary to him to move the ball down the field and accomplish this work of, the, of creating culture, of ordering things, particularly our homes. And that both men and women would be a reflection of your son, both in the exercise of our headship and in the exercise of our submission. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.